Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. The Happy Half Hour is a fun food and drink podcast brought to you by the editors of San Diego Magazine and food critic Troy Johnson. Learn about San Diego's food scene with news about restaurant openings and closings and discussions about what's happening in the culinary world. Get to know a local chef, restaurateur, or farmer each week and find your perfect affordable date night with the regular segment, Two People, 50 Bucks. Subscribe to Happy Half Hour wherever you listen to podcasts or visit sdmag.com happy. The holiday season is full of opportunities to give, and this Giving Tuesday is the perfect chance to give the gift of your time. Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership, along with its residents and employees, to clean up neighborhoods and plant trees. To volunteer, check out San Diego Giving Downtown Day on Eventbrite. Or you can donate a tree by visiting downtownsandiego.org slash growurban. Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego, joined as always by assistant editor, very thankful, Andrew Keats. Hey, how you doing, man? Happy Thanksgiving. And managing editor, Sarah Libby. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you are surviving the storm of the century, the, the waves of atmospheric rivers, all of the things falling on our heads. I had a bad experience with city services. You did? Yeah. We went to the, the District 3 pickup point for sandbags, which I was told would include information about where to get sand to put in the bags. Uh-huh. And when we went, they were like, oh, I, I have no idea. They didn't have a pile of sand right there? No, they just had bags. <laughs> and then we were like, well, where do we get sand? And she was like, I don't know, uh, Home, Home Depot or something? Really? Like, yeah. Seemed- we were like, well, if you go there, you can just buy. Sandbags. I was like, well, now what do I need the bags for? This is not the the whatever limiting you, principle here. Whatever you do, don't go to the beach because they will murder you. They they told us that they were like, yeah, you should tell go to you the where Hungary you was. cannot get they sand. Like, is they were like, the beach. it's illegal at the beach. <laughs> but also, I I don't think we were going to drive to the beach with bags. And yeah, stuff. That, that, <laughs> people wouldn't see that. Um, all right, well, coming up on this show this week, this Thanksgiving week, we are going to talk about Assemblyman Todd Glory. He got another big ador- endorsement for his bid for mayor. We'll talk about, about why we thought it mattered so much. We also have some more Sandag drama to talk about. The staff there has a new regular ho- hobby, right? A little quarterly hobby. Yeah, quarterly, triannually. All right, in the second half of the show, Andy sits down with Reverend Shane Harris of the People's Alliance for Justice, civil rights organization. Got an interesting uh, life story. But first, we're going to talk, we haven't had a chance yet to talk about this. Doug Manchester, Papa D. Three years ago, San Diego developer Doug Manchester was stoked when President Trump nominated him to be ambassador to the Bahamas, but the Senate delayed his confirmation, had all these questions about his characters suitability to represent the United States on the islands. A couple months ago, the president pulled the nomination. We Nobody quite knew why. CBS News, though, helped us understand what happened. Investigation uncovers a possible pay-for-play scheme involving President Trump's ambassador nominee to the Bahamas. It raises questions about whether diplomatic posts are for sale. So... Man, Manchester's confirmation was languishing in the Senate. The RNC, the Republican National Committee's Ronna McDaniel, thought that was the great time to ask Papa Doug for $500,000 in donations. And to be clear, while it was obvious to both participants in that email exchange what she was asking, she had the good political sense to not lay out the transaction in explicit terms. <laughs> so, so she asked him for $500,000, and then he writes back. process that he quickly addressed. He wrote back to McDaniel's request for half a million dollars. 
As you know, I'm not supposed to do any, but my wife is sending a contribution for $100,000. Assuming I get voted out of the Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday to the floor, we need you to have the majority leader bring it to a majority vote. Once confirmed, I, our family, will respond. We will respond. So just to make sure his... Just, it, like excruciating detail, like yeah. right yeah. down to the last... Like. What we're going to need is the floor vote. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. the Amazon Prime delivery man comes with my ambassadorship. Uh, so just to make sure it was totally clear, too, he actually copied two senators on the committee... In the message, like here, just why wouldn't you? <laughs> just so you can see. Now, with change the subject line to like re quid pro quo. <laughs> now, now, obviously, the Republican National Committee was a horrified. Yes, yeah, just yeah, yeah. just the pearls were being clutched, and they had a they they just couldn't stand this. The RNC says Mr. Manchester's decision to link future contributions to an official action was totally inappropriate. They said they have cut ties with him and returned the money his family donated earlier this year. Uh, okay, this <laughs> cut ties with it. They gave him yeah. back his money and said, "You're not welcome here anymore." Yeah, they, Doug Manchester. He gave a million dollars. They pulled out their little fans and whoa, whoa just <laughs> yeah. you know, how, how cool must he feel? There. Like of all of the things the Republican National Committee is defending right now of transactional behavior. That he's that the president's literally being impeached now for, and then and then this he's like, no, it's this, a bridge this, too far. This is too much. You have crossed the line, sir. And he's like, what, I thought that's what we do. What, 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 I thought we were am all I, doing. Am I the only one reading the news? <laughs> uh, I have I have one other thing here, which is, boy, is this a sad state of San Diego's villain class <laughs> that. The Pacific Northwest, they, their skeezy wealthy hotelier. Oh yeah, he buys not an ambassadorship to the Bahamas, to the EU. <laughs> and what does he do there? He orchestrates a quid pro quo that takes down the presidency. What does our skeezy hotelier do? He can't even successfully run the transaction to be the ambassador to the Bahamas. That's where we stand in the evil henchman world. Okay, in case you didn't know, Assemblyman Todd Gloria is running for mayor of San Diego. And last week, he got a big endorsement. We were able to confirm from people who were in the room that the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce, its board of directors, voted to endorse Todd Gloria for mayor. Now, we were surprised by this. Not, I mean, it, it's not that they're a very conservative, necessarily, you know, partisan organization, but of all of the different groups that might not support him or that would support the actual person who puts entrepreneur on a resume with like legit credibility, Barbara Bree didn't get the endorsement, not only couldn't get the endorsement, but couldn't delay this endorsement. And then it actually went to the guy who's been endorsed by the Democratic Party, the Labor Council, and a bunch of other, you know, like city unions and stuff. And I think that last part is the most uh, important point, which is it's not new necessarily for the Chamber of Commerce to endorse Democrats. They've endorsed Scott Peters. They've endorsed city council in city council races that were clearly Democrat for, on Democrat races. The difference here is choosing the the person who has labor so clearly behind him. Right. Like when they support somebody in a city council race, it's usually one candidate who's a Democrat who's seen as more supportive of labor and very progressive causes and activists, and then another one who's more supportive of the the free market ideals of the chamber, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, there's two kind of surprising pieces of it. One is that they endorse Gloria at all. And two is the timing. Um, there was nothing necessarily pushing them to do it right at this moment. So do you feel like this is a concession that there will be no Republican or independent person in the race? So my understanding is that that, that was said in the room was why do this now? Let's yeah. wait until December 5th, I believe, which is basically the deadline for somebody else to get in the race. And there was enough support in the room that Gloria overcame even that wow. opposition. And they literally, they 
talked about wanting to make sure to be seen as a leader that was sort of defining the race as opposed to just sort of jumping on board with somebody or something like that. And yeah, they were talking about like, well, what if a Republican gets in or what if somebody in the right of center gets in like Mark Kersey, no longer Republican, but was flirting with it. And they're like, time's passed, man. Like it's, if you were going to do this, you needed to have gotten in the race by now. They also might've been, uh, twice bitten as as we have been in the prediction of a, of an independent or de- <laughs> Republican getting in the race. Yeah. So uh, fascinating development. I, I would also add that, you know, you mentioned just the the uh, complication that Bree's, the basis of Bree's campaign being based on her entrepreneurial, tr- entrepreneurial history uh, plays here. Yeah. She, I, just to be clear. So she founded or helped found one of the companies that put the early terminals to access Wi-Fi in hotel rooms. Uh, then she was on the founding team that uh, that created proflowers.com. Uh, she also founded a, a business group to help female entrepreneurs. And she also, you know, supported uh, Connect. She was the founding group of that, that which connects Connect, like, capital. To, very closely associated. Right. So, you know, she's pretty closely associated with business in San Diego. Definitely. And, and not just that, but her campaign theory i think as we discussed on the podcast last week seems to involve getting a lot of voters who would be swayed by a chamber of commerce endorsement you know a lot of these north of eight upscale whether they're democrats or republicans but they're but they're upper income uh white people basically north of the eight who who i think would be moved by this endorsement i think that that this is uh whether they end up following that endorsement to Gloria or not, who knows? But I, but I do think that it it really cuts against the campaign narrative she was working on. Which is what now? Like, I, I mean, I think you're right, but at the same time, she hasn't made some of the plays that we were kind of waiting for her to make to appeal to the chamber this whole time. Instead, she's focused on scooters and vacation rentals and and some of those issues instead of making some like really over overtures that might have swayed the chamber yeah it's been like an unstated campaign yes so uh going forward again this is yet another mark um in his category of what could he have wanted to have happened that hasn't happened for him in this race uh, you know, talking to them, it seems like they were surprised to get the endorsement and obviously welcoming of it. So uh, fascinating development in the mayor's race. Um, yeah, we'll see how it's used. But again, it's starting to cobble together like labor and business agree that he, she would have to go now with a campaign or a message that's like, I'm a complete outsider, right? Like, uh, And like, I think she started to. She, she has, ha- yeah. she has released some campaign messaging about not being a politician, which, of course, she's an elected not member just of the messaging. city council. Yeah, but. <laughs> all the signs say, like, not a politician, which, you know, taps into my, we we can't demonize the word politics. Politics yeah. is how we do things. Like, uh, Also, words have meaning, and yeah, she, no, is she, one. she is one. She is one, though. We're not, will not she's literally <laughs> a politician. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how, uh, yeah, how those show up on, um, on different mailers and all kinds of things. That's okay. Staffers at the San Diego Association of Governments seem to have a new hobby, a new routine. Every few months, they update board members on just how terrible the agency's financial situation has gotten. So just to be clear, Sandag's staff uh, is works for the board of directors. The board of directors represents every city in the region, along with the county. And um, so the staff has, you know, been trying to keep them up to date on how things are going. This month, the agency's chief economist found a new way to drive home how bad things were for the board members. He reminded them that voters approved a half cent sales tax in 2004, and with that came a bunch of promises about what transportation projects it would fund. And he said that when San Diego voters stop paying that sales tax at half cent in 2048, they will have received about half of the transportation improvements that were promised. And that's the optimistic view. That's the optimistic. That's if you use the lower of two construction cost indexes and you assume that the revenue projections don't get worse, which both he and the director of Santa Crata said they expect them to get worse. So- how does that compare mm-hmm. to three years ago, 2016, as they were trying to get another half cent sales tax passed? 
Two things. In 2016, when we um, started reporting on the problems with the Measure A uh, revenue projections, they initially said, uh, okay, it seems like something is off here, but in any case, we maybe we're just more bullish than others on the San Diego economy. They didn't say that they were wrong. Right. After the election, they did. They said, oh, there was a problem with our Measure A forecast. But crucially, in 2016, and then again in 2017, and again in 2018, they said, we will finish absolutely everything we promised in Transnet. Unambiguously. Unambiguously. They acknowledged that the local revenue collections, the money that they took from every sales tax transaction, except for those that have some sort of exception, that every every sort of transaction, when they took a sales tax, they acknowledged that that money they had collected was lower than they had anticipated. But they said repeatedly, energetically, aggressively, enthusiastically, insistently, that they had more than made up for that reduced number by overperforming in the money that they got from state government and the federal government in matching grants. So every time they went to build a project, they took half of their money from the local revenue and they said, hey, federal government, hey, state government, why don't you guys pay for the rest of this project and then we'll be able to deliver it. They said they had done so well in that process that the out-of-town money had more than made up for the decreased local revenue and therefore, as long as they continued doing that, which they expected to do, they would still build everything. That was the unambiguous point in the immediate aftermath of the scandal after things continued to get worse and more revelations came forward after Gary Gallegos was fired as a result of the the investigation into him all the way through that did not change until the start of this year when Hassan Akrata started saying I am here to tell you the reality of the situation you will not be getting everything now, that, I, uh, that is unambiguously the case. So this is a story you did this week about this latest projection about how bad things were. A lot of very conservative folks seized on this story. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Like, uh, like you know, this is Broken something- Broken promises, you, uh, tax revenue. Government. Uh, promises made, promises not kept. But there was a Big L- government on failing to deliver. There's no- there's no end to the number of the number of taxes they're going to ask you to pass, and the failure of one will just be used as justification for the next. There's there's a lot of those folks have been really hammering Hassan Akrata. Yeah. Now he didn't create any of this. No. He's the one that's brought like this reality based discussion forward, right? Correct. Okay. And so, but there's like such a, a polarization effect with him because of the big ambitious plans he's proposed mm-hmm. for transit. Yeah, that it's creating this sort of weird world where they're like trying to hang some of these problems on him, and also like really attacking him. And it got one of these guys really twisted up. It seems like Jim Desmond, county supervisor, he uh, was on Sandag's board back in 2016. Yeah, he, he was San Marcos mayor at the time, not supervisor, but right. Yes. And he had um, an explanation for this. He was almost trying to defend the previous board's you know, reassurances. Yeah. Let me set this up as before he spoke, this is the second time he spoke during this meeting and leading up to it, multiple uh, of the more liberal progressive board members who support Akrata's long-term vision on transportation, their, their comments were praising him and saying, thank you for this transparency. This is bad news, but it's better to hear the bad news than to be sold a bill of goods. If previous boards had exercised more oversight or if previous administration had been more transparent, we wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, so thank you. And then he jumps in. Before we disparage further words, we did realize there was a shortfall. And that's why Measure A went out. We didn't have the money. I supported Measure A. So we realized this was a deficit and that we needed to go after more money. So it's, it's great I'm, you know, to hear the information again, but it wasn't that you know, everybody was just stupid and had their heads up their rear ends. It was, uh, we realized it. So this contradicts the claim until now that they really did have their heads in their rear ends. 
<laughs> like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about like arcane and complicated stuff, but this is actually like a bombshell that potentially, you know, I mean, we were joking about Papa Doug essentially emailing like we did the quid pro quo or <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. interested in quid pro quo, please. <laughs> um, this is essentially like, yeah, no, we were knowingly doing fraud. Yeah, I mean, I think there, I think there's an innocent explanation for it, but even that innocent explanation does not lay on to the uh, the the case that was made by Measure A proponents in service of Measure A during that campaign. So, which the, had nothing to do with filling a deficit exactly. of how the money was coming in. Yes, to relitigate that dispute at the time that we reported. Transnet has a major revenue problem and may not be able to deliver on the promises it made. And the important connection was legally there is no prohibition in Measure A that would keep that money from being spent to backfill those old promises. What Sandag staff said was, it is true that that could happen, but it won't happen. Why won't it happen? Because there is no shortfall. Because we will continue to make good on all of these these promises. So so to say, well, this is why we did it was because we knew there was a deficit and we had to do it. I mean, the Measure A campaign was very clear about Transnet was fine. Transnet was on solid financial footing. And therefore, this new money would be spent on new projects. And he, here's a guy who supported the new tax increase saying, yeah, we knew it was coming in short. And we just wanted to backfill these old promises. Now, now there here's the nuance that I believe he is indicating, which is there were a bunch of there still are a bunch of the unfunded transnet projects were highway projects and specifically highway projects in the northern part of the county, and those were scheduled when to be completed, but to be completed in the very end of Transnet during the pay-go portion where you've spent all the money you bonded for, you have to build up your your revenue reserves based on annual collections, and then eventually you'll have enough money to spend it on these things again. So it would have to wait until after 2040. One of the explicit promises in Measure A, without question, was that you would have this new bonding capacity and you could move those projects from the back of, of Transnet to the front of Measure A. That was an explicit promise of Measure A. But there's no way he's actually saying that. Well, I, because I follow Sandeg closely, I know that he has in the past said, I supported Measure A because it fast-tracked these. Okay. So that is what I believe him to be indicating. He might have considered saying that. Yes. Instead of that we just misled yeah. voters yes. and wanted to pay for this deficit. Right. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Andy's interview with Reverend Shane Harris. We'll be right back. When accidents, injuries, or emergencies happen, American Medical Response is there. As part of the Global Medical Response family of companies, AMR is committed to its mission of providing care to the world at a moment's notice. As a leading 911 emergency medical response provider within the community, AMR wants to remind you to stay safe, San Diego. To learn more about AMR, visit AMR.net. Andy. Scott. So you talked to uh, Reverend Shane Harris. I did. We're going to play that interview here in a second. Why did you want to talk to him? Well, so he... For one, I, I knew him to have an interesting life story, and I thought it would be uh, make for a good discussion. Uh, also, since he has come back to town and started his his new organization, they've gotten uh, pretty involved, and he's pushing them to focus very specifically on foster care and uh, some of the uh, unjust foster care outcomes in San Diego County. And given that he was a foster child, I thought that he would have unique perspective on that, and I thought it was interesting that he had um, kind of trained his focus on that problem specifically. All right, here's that conversation between Andy and Shane Harris. Rev. 
Reverend Shane Harris, the founder of the People's Alliance for Justice. Shane, thanks for coming in, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. You uh, are very active in a lot of fronts in San Diego right now, especially foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to that. I want to I kind of start at the beginning of, of your story, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so you grew up in San Diego County. Yep. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about your family and yourself, where you came from. Yeah, so I was born and raised right here in San Diego County. I was born at Mercy Hospital in Hillcrest. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I came into... My mom was uh, white. Her name was Kimberly, and my dad was African American and Puerto Rican. He was actually he actually was um, immigrated. Well, not immigrated. He came from Puerto Rico to New York, mm-hmm. and then ended up in California. He was the head chef at um, House of Metamorphosis. It's a local oh, yeah. San Diego based um, drug rehabilitation program, and he cooked there. He was the head chef. It's like right over in Stockton, right right next to the 94? Yeah, yeah right yeah, next to the right 94. Near my house. Yeah. And, um, and so my mom and my dad, like most parents, right, they met, um, they hit it off, they had me. Mm-hmm. and But they weren't connected. They weren't, um, you know, getting married or anything like that. So when they had me, they both um, kind of uh, split apart. They were mm-hmm. already arguing um, and, you know, kind of going at it. And how I came up with the last name Harris was because my mom was mad at my dad during the whole time that they were having me and decided to give me her ex-husband's last name. <laughs> it's a, a lasting bit of uh, vengeance. Right. <laughs> and good. so um, and so that was how I got the last name Harris. And then moving right along, um, I was I, I went through, you know, obviously the challenges of a, of a divided family mm-hmm. uh, with my mom and my dad. Um, and what eventually happened was, um, uh, it was, it was one day that my, my parents, my dad had, had let me go see my mom on the weekends. Mm-hmm. They had split custody. And so I would stay with my mom sometimes, stay with my dad most of the time. Um, he was more of the more stable one. And mm-hmm. so one day when my mom, um, who, who had, um, overdosed several times on methadone, um, and obviously tons of pain drugs. You know, we talking about opioid opioid crisis in this country. My mom was dealing with the early stages of that kind of stuff. And so she um, overdosed and fell asleep at the wheel um, one day while taking me to school on a hill going on on the upside. And police came and all this. And so they took me away. I went into foster care for three years in and out from 97 to 2000. And um, and then my dad got custody of me again full you know full-fledged custody um and when so um, how old were you in 97 to i was i was uh so i was five years old okay yeah and so when i was eight years old um in 2000 um my dad uh, got cancer of the liver one day i was walking home from school i was like back and forth from school all the time i was walking i was cooking um when he got diagnosed and one day I was coming home from school and there was all these ambulances out front. He lived in South Park. That was his last residence. Mm-hmm. And I just knew something was wrong. And when I got to the apartment, sure enough, they were hauling my dad out. Um, he was really sick and he was headed to hospice. And I rode in in the ambulance with him to hospice. So you got to say goodbye to him. Yeah. At least. I was uh, at hospice yeah. and I stayed there all night. A half sister uh, came, my dad's side. And I had never met her, mm-hmm. and she. Uh, I was with her all night, yeah. and then in the morning, uh, roughly about 6 a.m., they called me in, the nurses and folks, and asked me to come talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. And my dad was very sick, but I will never forget, he looked at me, he said, son, I love you, you're going to do great things, stay strong, and he closed his eyes. That was, that was the last time I saw my dad. It's tough, man. Yeah, it was tough. Uh, and so you went back into a series of foster homes after that? Yeah, that was when, um, so what, what ended up happening was my sister, uh, who I said, uh, Courtney, came in. It was um, a sister I never met, and mm-hmm. she took me to Vallejo. I went to Vallejo, California uh, for um, probably about two months I was there, mm-hmm. um, staying with her. She had a very abusive uh, boyfriend who was already beating her and doing things, and I ended up getting abused by him constantly. Well, little did I know he was the had a warrant out for his arrest for something he had done. So one day, um, after he got done beating me really badly, he put me into a closet in the apartment complex. And 
I guess the police came. You could hear doors getting knocked down. And so the police found me in that closet. And that was how I ended up back in San Diego at the end of 2000 and going into foster care permanently because my mom was, she was, you know, um, on drugs and, and they wouldn't let me go with her. So. But you maintained a, a something of a relationship with her just while you were in foster care? We did. We maintained um, a relationship. It was a lot of arguing because I would always feel like her drug addiction was so selfish mm-hmm. because of everything that I was going through in foster care. I was going from home to home. Um, I had a lot of hang-up issues, you know, early childhood issues, um, and just wanting her to be a mom. Yeah. Um, but... You know, I think that, um, you know, what ended up happening was we ended up really um, kind of just at the end of her life, I think, finding a real connection. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was too late because she took her life to suicide. Mm. Yeah. Sorry to hear that, man. You've had a, had a rough run of it early in, in life. It was rough. Yeah. Uh, where, where do you like what part of town do you consider home? Where did you know where where did you spend the most time or where did you? feel like you you belonged when you were there yeah so um i was in foster care for mm-hmm. 13 years um and i moved around san diego a lot you know in the system you know they come get you social worker comes to the door you're going to the next home and you don't even know you get your little bag you get in the back of the car it's a county car usually and you're taken from one home to the next placement if it's a foster home or a group home and so uh, most of my placements ended up in Southeast San Diego. Mm-hmm. I, I lived, um, I lived on, um, on the Lincoln Park side, mm-hmm. um, lived on the Skyline side, and most of my placements were in Southeast San Diego. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Morris. You went to Morris? Yeah. yeah. I'm a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How was that? How, how was your high school, your high school years? It was, it was rough. I mean, I was really struggling um, yeah. because I lost my mom right in at freshman year and it, with everything that was already going on, the placements, I had been through eight placements. Yeah. Um, and by that time I was in, um, a home, which later ended up being a horrific experience. It was very rough through those years because I had a lot of hangups. Um, I didn't trust anybody. I, I mean, was, how could you? Yeah. I was trying to survive. I was homeless for a period of time. It's, you know, um, so there was lots of, you know, rough issues uh, being in high school and not really being able to focus on my education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when did you start thinking that you wanted to uh, to get into religion? When did you want to become a pastor? So I got saved when I was 16 and, you know, saved in the Christian churches. You know, you're accepting God, you know, into your life. And, you know, and so it's it was my spiritual experience. And I would say, like, everybody has a different spiritual experience. But um, this was mine. You know, this was this moment, this defining moment. I had never been in a church. I had tried multiple different uh, types of religions and different types of techniques. My mom believed in Buddhism. Uh, my my grandmother actually was an avid practicer of, of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, I played with... Um, you know, the nation of Islam and different things, different, you know, different things in the community, people throwing different things at you. Yeah. Try this, try that, you right. know, right. Um, try the gang life, you know, try this, try that. So I'm trying all kinds of different things. When I was 16, I lost my mom. I uh, was invited to this church in San Diego called New Creation. And uh, it's a Christian non-denominational church. And I go the first, I go this one Sunday. It was cool. It was all right. Wasn't really into it, but I liked the message. The message was powerful. And then I liked like the choir and the praise and worship. Mm-hmm. And then I went back. They they invited us. There was a youth Sunday the next Sunday. And this young pastor, at the time he was younger, his name was Eric Gaffney. He was the youth pastor at New Creation. And he was preaching a sermon that just penetrated my heart. Mm. Like I had never been penetrated before in that area and the message was all about when all things fail and people leave this is god will be there to protect you and guide you and it was just this powerful message that i had felt in this moment like god was speaking to me saying this is i'm here for you and you just got to trust me and take this walk of faith and so 
They did the invitation at the end. Church was big at that time. New Creation was probably averaging about 3,000 uh, members a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and the services were, were roughly you know, 850 people a service. So it was packed. And so I didn't want to walk down the, the, the aisle and do all of that. You know, I was nervous. So after the sermon, service is over, a guy runs to the side and he says, Shane. And I'm like looking around like, oh, you, nobody here knows me. Mm-hmm. This guy, lo and behold, he's calling me. He doesn't know me. He said that God had shown him me in a dream. And so he calls me over. He introduces me to the youth pastor. And they're like, "You, this is your moment. You don't have to run. You've ran your whole life, but God is here for you. And this is not about us. This is not about human people being here. We're, we're here just to try to, you know, share this, you know, with you that you can, you can let the reins loose on your life. You could trust God. And so they asked me if I wanted to accept, um, you know, God into my life. And and I decided to, at that moment, it was a, it was a, it was a leap of faith because I didn't really, I didn't believe in religion. I didn't, you know, I'd seen a lot of things fail, had a lot of people take me in their homes and then I'm moving to the next home. So I didn't, you know, and so how much longer after that were you a uh, certified pastor on your own? So um, I got saved when I was 16. Um, a couple weeks later, I was sitting in my room. Um, every Sunday after church, I would go sit in my room. And um, I hear God say, there's these like plastic bins in the corner. I hear God say, set up those bins, set up a podium in my room. <laughs> I put out like a couple teddy bears and I opened up to Psalm 23 and I began preaching right there in my room talking about my story, talking about how, you know, God would, you know, that scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes on to talk about lying down in green pastures, going through valleys, um, just all kinds of challenges, and God will be there with you. And I preached that sermon right there, the Lord is my shepherd. And and so a couple weeks later, after that experience, I, I said, I think I have a calling. And I went to my foster mom at the time, who I could later talk about, they took her foster care license because of horrific things that were happening in her in her home. There was five of us. Mm. And I go to her and I say, I feel like I'm called to preach. I think, I think I'm being called to ministry. And she says, No, you, you you don't have it. You know, you're not perfect. You don't you you're not ready. There's no way. There's no way you can do this. So me being the persistent guy that I am, <laughs> I'm at church one Sunday and after the service. Uh, the head pastor was there. I run up straight up to the uh, like podium stage after the service. And I say, Pastor Gary, I have a call in the preach. And he, he connects me with the youth pastor. He says, all right, we're going to we're going to train them up. And so they started, you know, taking me through the licensure process. Um, you know, in the in the Baptist church, uh, National Baptist Convention, which which is the, you know, churches that I became a part of. Um, they have a really tough, rigorous process. You can't just go in and say, I'm going to preach. There's a licensure process. You have to get licensed, and then you have to get ordained. And so I was licensed when I was 18, and I was ordained when I was 21. Um, When I was going through ordination process, there was all kinds of things that I had to do. One, I had a church plant group. So this was a group of folks from the church that I ended up uh, shuttling from. So I was at New Creation. I ended up at Bethel Baptist Church uh, later on in my ministry where I was appointed as the youth pastor, served there for, I think, three years. And then Dr. Ringgold and uh, Dr. Andre Evans and a few pastors came together and they had a, it's a council. So it's like going through a doctorate program. Mm-hmm. You have to, um, you know, write a, you have to write basically a dissertation. You have to, uh, you know, uh, go through a certain level of, of uh, seminary, uh, level training, um, all kinds of stuff, right? Going into the, the Greek and the Hebrew of the Bible, um, and once you know, once you go through this year process, then you you know come out, then you plant your church for another year, which means you organize a church, mm-hmm. and then once you do that, um, then you get ordained. And so that was the pro- I went through a two year process, and I was ordained in twenty one. And so, and that was. This may be a good bridge into what you're what you've been doing since then. Mm-hmm. 
How did you um, come to the decision or how did circumstances lead you to, rather than stay in one church, build a congregation for however long, you know, some people spend their whole lives doing that. Mm -hmm. How did you decide instead of that to go into community organizing, advocacy, uh, that sort of outreach work? So good question. Um, I want to take you back real quick to when I was 16 and I lost my mom. Mm -hmm. This is very important. When I lost my mom, who was white, Mm -hmm. and my dad, who was black, um, my mom died later, though. Mm -hmm. Um, Her her sister came to town from Austin, Texas, and I had never met my aunt. And, you know, we're going through the process, cleaning out her house and doing everything. And we get to the funeral. Now, mind you, this was... Um, not even a funeral. It was more like a celebration, a gathering of life, memorial, that I ended up having to organize at 16 and raise money for, uh, which I don't understand what happened there, but my foster mom had me organizing my mom's funeral. Yeah. Um, But we're at the funeral, and I'm meeting my aunt. Last time I had seen her, I did meet her when I was young, but I was just a little kid. I didn't remember her. Yeah. And I'm saying to my aunt, you know, this is, I was in a home where I was being really badly abused. I'm talking physical, mental, horrific things happening. Padlocks on the door. You can't go in the refrigerator. I mean, just really bad things happening. So I get to my aunt and I say, you know, um, Aunt Stacy, I want to come with you. I want to move to Texas. I want out of here. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and she says, you know, Shane, we really love you, but you resonate more with your other side. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you resonate more with, you know, your dad's side. And so later what that, what I resulted in, in meaning was that I was resonating more with my black side. Mm-hmm. So this was my first encounter with racism at a very horrific time where I needed a family member who really could take me out of foster care and take me to Texas. And my life probably would have been patterned differently. Mm-hmm. Some for the good, some for the bad. But needless to say, this was my first experience with racism. So I had experienced fighting for my rights and advocacy or activism for a long time through my childhood, fighting social workers, telling the system that there was abuse happening mm-hmm. and them not taking me out of homes and all kinds of things. So fast forwarding to 21, I was sitting at a meeting one day and these two guys come in, very bright brothers, Aaron Harvey and Brandon Duncan. And it was at it was at a Black Men United meeting at that time uh, years ago. This group was a really much more vibrant group, had, you know, a lot of um, a lot of like the power players and house, you know, leaders in the city, African-American men. Um, at that time, who would attend this meeting. And we would all attend to talk about different issues happening and how to change, you know, the community. So these guys bust in the door and they say, you know, we just got out. We need help. And they say, you know, the DA is trying to take, I'll never forget Brandon, Brandon Duncan. He says, the DA is trying to take my life. And it's based on rap lyrics. And, you know, I remember sitting there and feeling convicted because the other ministers some who were in the room were saying oh no 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 i mean these guys are you know we're not going to jump on these guys' boat we're not going to go advocate you know we don't know who these guys are blah 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 i grabbed brandon and aaron and i took them outside i said i want to talk to you guys i want to learn about what's happening and they told me the story and so um this was the moment that changed my life forever this was the moment that gave me a peek into understanding what it is to what it is to be to have injustice and then to be slapped in the face with it at the same time. And so you reference this as uh, Brandon Duncan, known as Tiny Dew, is right. his rap name. Aaron Harvey. We wrote about this at the time. This was Bonnie Demonis charged them with a previously unused statute yep, that Penal is Code now one eighty two point five, which has now been. Uh, off the books, yep. basically, mm-hmm. um, which allowed them to charge with guilt by association yep. uh, for the crimes of other gang members simply by connecting them to the gang through yep. Facebook posts and rap lyrics. And that, and I had a problem with that. 
Yeah. Because my whole life I had been through that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And for somebody to put somebody in prison for rap lyrics and not be able to prove they committed the crimes, that was a problem for me. And so I got involved in that fight, began to you know advocate with other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, I didn't. I wasn't the president of anything, or the, I was just pastor in a church. Mm-hmm. And I worked with SDOP uh, under Organized SDOP project, at that time, yeah. San Diego Organizing Project. Yeah. And so then, when I got to know you, was a little bit after that. Mm-hmm. You were with the National Action Network, yep. Reverend Sharpton's group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were the, uh, ran the local chapter of that. Yeah. Uh, how did you get hooked up with uh, with Reverend Sharpton? How did that first happen? So I was d- taking on the fight for you know with the Penal Code One Eight Two Point Five movement. Um, and and fighting the, this horrific uh, situation that had garnered national attention and was important uh, to communities across the country. Uh, through this whole time period where I'm taking on these things, the Western Regional Director of National Action Network gets a hold of me. He says, you know, we're seeing the work you're doing. We want to, you know, talk to you. And so I later ended up um, meeting and, and, and having a conversation with Reverend Sharpton in Los Angeles where we ended up talking about the National Action Network. I had known of Reverend Sharpton, but I didn't know specifically what he did. I didn't know about an organization. And he starts telling me about the National Action Network and and about its efforts mm-hmm. and that there wasn't, you know, a, a strong presence in this region. And and as I started to look into the situation, I said, well, you know, right now I'm pastoring. I got this going on. I got too much going on. Mm-hmm. Let me get back to you on that. And so, um, you know, as far as opening up a chapter, founding mm-hmm. a chapter, uh, which if anybody knows, it's hard work. Civil rights period, uh, when you're talking about organizing a local chapter of a national civil rights organization, nobody, not the NACP, not the National Action Network, not the Urban League, nobody funds you from national to start a chapter. And there's really not a real walkthrough process. I mean, it's it's a very, you know, rough process. So I said, I get back. What happens is I get back here, and after the Penal Code 182.5, obviously, Brandon and Aaron and all those folks get up, get off of, you know, uh, the uh, sentence. You know, they don't mm-hmm. get sentenced. And what ends up happening is that there's these 100 tenants in El Cajon City that call me and they're like, you know, there was an organizer there. They reached out to me and said, Reverend, we need a strong voice, a faith voice in the community. And we need you out here. This mm-hmm. is what's going on. People's uh, homes or apartments are molded. All this stuff is going on. And I, I went out there. And, uh, and so at that time I didn't have like a particular, like an organization or anything like that. And that was when it hit me that I needed to be involved and I needed to do something about what was going on. There was a lack of activism, faith voice from the black church perspective that was here. And it's still, ha- I mean, still in San Diego, there's a, there's still a lack of African-American leadership from the faith perspective. And so you mean in terms of like substandard housing or whatever certain issues right you could you could find a bunch of different issues right. and, and lend your voice to social justice social issues. justice so issues. Yeah. at that time i was pastoring and so i remember calling uh the western regional director and calling rev and saying mm-hmm. you know hey do, do i have to pastor a church to to do this or like like what what you know like could i go into activism straight on. Mm-hmm. And Reverend Sharpton says, yeah, I mean, this is all in our history. Dr. King had to leave Ebenezer to go full time in activism because it takes that much time of uh, that much of your time. Mm-hmm. I mean, during the penal code, every Sunday after church, we were rallying downtown. Mm-hmm. And and that was all organizing and time that has to go into actually doing this work. So I decided, uh, you know, to go with National Action Network, come on board, found a chapter and to um, to 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 leave the uh, the church plant that I was you know beginning um, to go into activism, I felt that this was the calling that that God had set me up all these years to go into. Yeah, and so then you also there was a number of issues that you became pretty high profile uh, spokesperson around mm-hmm. uh, Alfredo Longo's shooting. Uh, there was a, remember a specific incident at Lincoln High uh, that you were inv- very involved with. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, what, are, what are the things that really stand out to you in that, that National Action Network period of your life? That, that... I think that NAN afforded me a great opportunity. It mm-hmm. afforded me the opportunity to be local mm-hmm. and to understand local issues and to still be connected to national uh, network, right? Uh, one thing that Reverend Sharpton has done really well is he has been able to maintain a Harlem presence in Harlem, New York, a strong presence in Harlem, New York, while leading national movements. And I think that, and, and you know, people criticize him. I saw a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I saw him give money to families. Mm-hmm. He gave money to the family of Alfred Alonga. We helped pay for the funeral. So the things that I saw were different than what I had, the controversy and mm-hmm. different things that I had heard about him. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that it gave me a few things. It gave me the understanding of moving local, being having a national network and connection. Um, it gave me the understanding of obviously there was issues like Alfred Alongo where we were able to get involved and raise the profile of it and keep it national. Um, obviously it was, you know, there was issues uh, that happened along the line of even bringing body cameras to uh, to the San Diego Police Department. I was a part of that regime uh, at that time. I was on the advisory board for, with Shelly Zimmerman, and we pushed that. And I was at the press conference when she announced that she was going to put body cameras. You see me in the picture right behind her. So we were a part of this early regime in San Diego particularly. I, I, when I look at most of my work with National Action Network San Diego, I look at the beginning of all the work that people are doing now around police accountability. We were the ones, me, Bishop Bowser, Terrell Fletcher, and a few others out of the Penal Code 2.5 came into police reform. And we were the ones ushering in a new generation of police reform and a new focus on it that wasn't there. So, yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about when you, when uh, you left National Action Network and you and I had a conversation about this, I guess it was about a year ago this yeah. time. Um, and you told me at the time that you had learned a lot of lessons during that period. And I want to read a couple quotes. This is from um, a story Peter Rowe at the Union Tribune did about you um, about eight months ago. Uh, this is from Reverend Sharpton. He said, uh, we need to stop our jealousy, our infighting. If you were doing your jobs, he's talking to the community, Shane Harris wouldn't have happened. And John Warren, who's the publisher of The Voice and Viewpoint, longtime community activist, said about you, he has the potential to be a rising star, but if you burn the bridges nationally like you have locally, that star will start to fizzle. Mm-hmm. What do you think, and you, and the, I think they're pointing towards something, and I think you pointed towards it to me when you told me that you'd learned some lessons. Mm-hmm. What was it that you experienced that served as a learning opportunity for you? What, what didn't go as planned that you decided to, to reflect on at some point? I think that, there was multiple things that I have learned and I couldn't share them all here. Yeah. But I think one of the things Andy was realizing I came in really fast mm-hmm. into the social justice sphere. And I think one of the reasons that Reverend Sharpton raises in his own words is that there wasn't a whole lot going on, especially from the faith based African black church activism side mm-hmm. in San Diego. I came in at a time where there wasn't, a lot, if any, um, of black ministers involved in the social justice movement. Um, I mean, I think with the Penal Code 182.5, it took about eight months uh, through that whole movement to get somebody beside me, Terrell Fletcher and Bishop Bowser, on that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And there was other ministers, African-American ministers, that later got involved. So I think that on Reverend Sharpton's side, when he mentions if you were doing your job, Shane Harris wouldn't have happened. Um, he's talking about this guy came in, he was filling a void. Mm-hmm. He wasn't standing in line behind a bunch of guys to do it. He got up and did the job, did the work, and maybe he rubbed some wrong shoulders. Maybe he you know, uh, burned some bridges, right, um, that he later had to go back and deal with. But at the time, Shane was trying to really, at the core of what he was fighting, was really dealing with a regime in San Diego. Obviously, it's a military-based town. Obviously, it was much more conservative at that time. We were fighting a lot of conservative, backward mindsets Mm -hmm. that we were trying to change. And so 
And and so I even talk about we had the harder side of police reform mm -hmm. that we were fighting. Now you've got a more a regime of Democrats and folks that in San Diego that are now engaged with that conversation. Yeah, we were preaching this when Democrats like Myrtle Cole, the former council president, didn't want to even talk to us about this. And and so one of the things that that occurred um, around that time was some you know as that criminal justice movement started to to mature mm -hmm. uh Genevieve Jones Wright ran for district attorney mm -hmm. and you had an, a period during her campaign where you had um basically said don't take it for granted that I'm going to support your campaign mm -hmm. do you regret how that played out did do you do you do you feel like that was one of the issues that you know is related to what you know uh John Warren's talking about here i think that um and me and John have a great relationship, mm -hmm. by the way. And he's actually reached out. He's, you know, doing a lot of stuff, uh, working closely with us. But I think one of the things that uh, he raises and that what happened with Genevieve is a good point here, that um, I don't apologize for what I was trying to push for. I think what I was trying to push for was very much so genuine in the fact that both candidates running for district attorney should address families of police reform. The way I was going about it was wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when I look back now um, on that experience, I would never change the core of why I was fighting for the families to have a voice at the table with the district attorney's race. I will always look at how moving forward, nobody has to come sit down at your headquarters or talk to you at all. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Now, how that can play into their future, that's up to them. But you extend the olive branch. If they come, then great. If they don't come, then you don't get mad. You don't take on personal attacks. And that is what I regret about that time is that I would change differently moving forward. It's not personal. This is not a personal thing. It doesn't matter if somebody's black or white or a district attorney or running for city council. If you raise the issues and you stay focused on the work, they will have to come and will not be able to deny that. And that is what I did wrong. I got into a bickering battle about the candidates coming to headquarters and coming to speak at my event rather than staying focused on the work, which I, you know, you come back, everybody has a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I would stay focused on the work and fighting for the families, fighting for people, and let that speak for itself and let that raise to the candidates what they need to be or should be focusing on. And so it's kind of come full circle now. Your new group, People's Alliance for Justice, uh, has started a, a campaign and has really successfully raised an issue around foster care in the county. Uh, what is it that you're working on now and what specifically do you, are you trying to elevate uh, for the county government in, when it comes to the foster care system? So one of the things that people have misconception about when it comes to foster care or race in general, is people say, okay, there's racism in education, racism in policing, racism here, racism there. But people will not acknowledge racism in foster care and racial bias. And so we're raising a very important issue with our Every Child Heard campaign. It's a campaign we began um, in the state of California um, in five counties, we're targeting uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, San Francisco, and Sacramento, um, five of the counties that have some of the highest populations of African-American and Latino foster youth. And we began to form a task force uh, last December. I began to talk to folks up and down the state, you know, looking at, you know, as we were going to begin the alliance, where should we put our work, uh, put our footprint at in certain issues? And, and this was one of them. And we began to study. I mean, this was an issue that's near and dear to my heart, obviously. But I didn't know the specifics of data or where we currently are. So we began to look at it. 13,500 kids in foster care, African-American children in foster care in California. 20% um, of foster youth, when they leave the system, they go homeless immediately. So obviously, uh, underlying homeless issues that we, we uh, are, are talking about. And in San Diego uh, and in the state, 50% of foster youth graduate from high school. That's half of the foster youth population. In San Diego, 47% of foster youth graduate high school. So we began to identify these little issues. Now, 
in San Diego, we wanted to begin because this is where I'm from. And this is the organization I founded, and this is where we want to begin our work as a project and a pilot to the other counties that we're working in and across the country. If we can make the foster care system better in San Diego for every child to be heard, then we can really take this brand across the state and across the country and really make needed changes. So we started this as a cultural competency project. Mm-hmm. There was, there's been high studies that have shown African-American children in foster care across the country and Latino children in California, many of them, even some coming out of the immigration uh, when, when parents are taken at the border, some kids are even taken to CPS. So we know that the foster care issue is there. Now we're trying to connect it outside of the silos, get it connected to the movement. And so our whole focus has been around cultural competency, which is to address racial bias in the foster care system. What does that look like? Seeing more African-American uh, professionals at the county level dealing with the children, whether it be social workers or therapists. So There's on a, their staffing side, make right. sure make sure those people working in the system look like the people look using like the system. the children in the system. There's only two African-American therapists in the whole county right now that are with CWS, with Child mm-hmm. Welfare Services. That's egregious. And we know people are coming out with their um, degrees in social work, but they're not getting the jobs uh, at the county level. So that we raised that issue there. We raised the... the um, the uh, school of origin issue, right? When kids are going from school to school to school, they aren't able to focus on their education. That 53% that don't graduate high school in San Diego that are in foster care, they are mostly African-American and Latino youth. What are we doing to address this population that's not graduating from high school? How are we going to fight that? How are we going to change that? Um, You know, when I was 17, they snatched me out of Morris, took me to San Pasquale Academy. Uh, a quick snatch all the way in the in the uh, orange groves out in Escondido. I had no idea where I was. Mm-hmm. So how do we address this serious issue when you talk about kids in the system? And so you have a majority of African-American and Latino children, but they're underserviced at the county levels via county workers. There is not enough uh, African-American foster homes. We've been addressing this in our partnership uh, with Live Well San Diego, which we're joining the uh, Live Well San Diego partnership, and we're becoming, uh, we're forming an MOU that will be announced in a few weeks with the uh, HHSA, Health and Human Services Agency. And another issue that we've been uh, raising in this whole context is the lack of African American foster home participation. Mm-hmm. There's not a real participation because the county is not doing enough outreach in the areas of particularly south of the eight. 92114 and such are not getting enough attention on these uh, particular issues. In terms of recruiting foster families. Recruiting foster families. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of issues with this that we're raising. The big one that we're about to drop, and I'm going to give it to you uh, as a special. This is good because I was about to ask you what we can look forward to in the immediate future. So So homelessness in San Diego. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about homelessness in San Diego, We cannot talk about the homeless crisis without talking about the foster care population. They're not graduating. We know that from high school. 10% nationally go to college. Only 2% graduate from college, uh, foster youth. And so when you look at this homeless crisis, we are asking uh, Tammy Kohler and the Regional Task Force on Homelessness now as we're getting into this Mm -hmm. issue going forward, we're saying that the Regional Task Force on Homeless needs to have a particular surveying of the county homeless population, particularly in San Diego, in the city. We need to survey the homeless population to see how many of the homeless population are from foster care, are emancipated. That would be a big draw to issues like building a pipeline from foster care to construction, a trade, uh, rather than to homelessness. But we're seeing a large pipeline of foster youth that leave the system and they end up becoming adults in a homeless population that is egregious here mm-hmm. in the county. Need, need I say that? So we're raising the issue that these this population should be surveyed. We can't just say youth. We need to survey foster youth and see how many of the people on our streets, living on our streets, were in foster care at one point. Why is that important? Because now we can attack that pipeline by addressing other ways to address these 
wants young people who come out of the system who become homeless adults in our population. Reverend Shane Harris, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in downtown San Diego the day before Thanksgiving in this area as we all wait for the storm of the century. If you've got more listening time this weekend, you're driving or you're just walking the dog or you're trying to, you know, shed some of those calories, we have some great stuff for you to check out. The second season of Good Schools for All has been rolling for a couple months now. That show, which I host with reporter Will Hunsbury, has some great stories in the feed. Episodes about a charter school empire, Voice of San Diego's big uh, misconduct investigation into sexual issues at uh, schools, universal pre-K, and more. Find a link for that in the show notes or go to vosd.org slash schools pod. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Andrew Keats is Assistant Editor. Sarah Libby is the Managing Editor. The show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you have a good week. And we'll talk to you next week.